This morning's scripture, Romans the 8th chapter, it's the same verses as last week, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? The word of God, let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these encouraging words that were penned by Paul through your spirit so many years ago, Father. We thank you that your word is forever alive and that we can apply it so well to our lives. May we use these as a source of encouragement through us each and every day, and especially in those moments when we question, when we wonder, when we cry out for help with confidence in our eternity. And Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just emblazon these words on our hearts in a new way. May they forever be seared into our minds and spirits. And Lord, it is my prayer that the words I speak be not mine, but be yours and bring glory unto you and feed your sheep. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Worry and anxiety about salvation can be debilitating. It can cause a great many of sleepless nights. And it can steal your joy in this life. Wondering what's going to happen once we pass on or move beyond this life can lead to depression, can lead to any number of bad things. It can also lead us to a state where we just want to throw our hands up and walk away. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to deal with it. So we're just going to not address it and walk away. You see, that is such a problem when someone tries to believe that they're responsible for their own salvation. That is such a problem when we think that we can do something for our salvation or we can do something to keep our salvation. Because it carries with it a very large burden. But that's the beauty of salvation by grace. That's the beauty of salvation being the free gift that God gives us. When we add to our salvation by works or attempts at works, we don't have any guidance on what's enough, right? No, there's nothing in this Bible that tells me what is enough that I have to do to gain eternal life. Outside of everything. 
So at what point do I get there? What do I have to do to be able to get to that place? What is it? I can't answer that. I can't tell you that. I know the Bible tells us what we shouldn't do, and that's basically every sin imaginable, which I've already done. So where, does that end, where do I end up? I hope you can see the internal burden that that places on people, everybody, me, you, you name it. Because outside of that, I don't know what I need to do to get there. And if I say that I'm there, what do I need to do to stay? What is that burden? What if I I let a bad word slip out of my mouth? What if I say something untrue about my friend or my neighbor? Where does that end up at? How does that fit into the equation? Do I suddenly lose it and go back and have to rewind and start all over? Am I saved again every time I, I screw up? In this lifelong quest of perfection? It's tiring. And I hope you can see where you're like, I can't do it. I'm out. I can't do it. Nobody can do it. I'm out the door. So you have have that camp. Because if we're really real with ourselves... We know we can't do it. We know what's between these two ears. And most of the time, there's not much good in there. We know that we can't do it. And that's the beauty of these passages that we've been going through. It's the beauty of having the confidence that God gives us through Paul of this portion of Romans 8, of knowing it's not up to us, that there is someone that took care of this for us. There's someone that did all the work for us so that we don't have to throw our hands up and say, I can't do it, I'm out the door. God doesn't want us to live in that state of Is this enough, God? Do I need to do something else? What's going to end up keeping me there? He doesn't want us to live in that state. He wants us to be confident about eternity so that we are free to love Him and we're free to make a mistake every now and then. And oh, what beautiful assurances we have in these passages that we've been looking at. But as I said last week, I caution you as you try to grasp hold of these assurances. They're not for everybody. These assurances and these confidences that we can have in being children of God, not for everyone. They only apply to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. They only apply to God's elect, as we have seen week after week after week. And so we have these beautiful passages. Verse 31, Paul asks the question, If God is for us, who can be against us? We spent weeks looking at that. Verse 32, If God did not spare His only Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not also give us all things? 
And we spent multiple weeks going over that passage because that passage is remarkable. Remember I said if he did the hard thing, giving his son up for our salvation, he's going to do the easy thing, getting us there, making sure we don't screw it up in the process. He's going to get us there so we can glorify his son, not so we can glorify ourselves. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? After all, it is God who justifies. It is God who saves. We're going to look at another one of Paul's questions, which is in turn a beautiful promise that God has given us all. And I hope, I really hope that these promises and these passages that we've been looking at give you as much confidence and comfort as they give me because they're beautiful in so many ways. And there is no way that I can go through these passages without hearing the Holy Spirit yell on the security of salvation for those who are in Christ. These promises should be of such great encouragement to us in those difficult moments when we worry about our salvation, when we question where we are during those difficult times. Verse 34, and we're going to spend the rest of the morning, well, i got one more, but most of the rest of the morning on this. Paul asked the question, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I didn't cover this passage last week. I didn't get to it. So this week it was going to be an add-on to a much greater passages through 39. And as I started developing this, I never moved past verse 34. So we have another question that Paul asks. And as you go through all of these, 31 through 34, he asks a lot of these questions. They're rhetorical questions, and he loves rhetorical questions. Who is to condemn? Who condemns us? So verses 31 through 34, they're all rhetorical questions. And he asks them that the answer is obvious or should be obvious. Should be very obvious to us, to us all. Who's going to condemn us? He's just told us above that if God is for us, no one can be against us. He doesn't really say that. He said, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? The answer is obvious, no one. Then he asks the next question, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can bring a successful charge against God's elect? Who's going to be able to convict us? The answer is obvious, no one. No one can convict us. And he gives us the reasoning behind that because who saves us? God. Nobody can convict us because God saves us and you can't appeal to anybody with greater power or greater authority. So then that brings us to this question. Who is to condemn us? So we, we kind of go in order, right? Who's, who's going to say anything bad about us? Who's going to bring a successful charge against us? And now, here's the real question. Who is going to condemn us? 
That's the ultimate question. Who condemns us? God is the only one that has that power. He's the only one that has that authority. He's the only one that has that ability, right? Who is there to condemn us? If God, and it is God who is for us and who saves us, there's no one left to condemn us but God. The answer is obvious, and it should be obvious. As I said, it's a rhetorical question. Either it doesn't have an answer or the answer is obvious and should be obvious to us. The answer is no one. The same as all the other questions. It's no one. But Paul doesn't leave us there. He's gotten us there through a a beautiful matrix of logic from 31 through 34 and, and arguing to us in different ways. And so he asked this next question, and the answer is obvious. It is no one, but he doesn't just leave us there. He's given us a, a good foundation, but he's going to add to that. He's going to add to the answer, the obvious answer to that question with very thorough and beautiful logic. And he gives us a series of four reasons why there is no one that can condemn us. And he starts with reason number one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus is the one who died. That is reason number one why there is no one to condemn us. Jesus came to this earth out of his love for us. He left all the glory, all the power of heaven. Came to this earth in the form of an infant. Lived a perfect life was scourged and laughed at and mocked and scorned, beaten, took on our sin and died. Died for us all so that we might have eternal life. That's a big deal. That's an extraordinary thing. It's something that is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Paul knew it was an extraordinary act. But he didn't leave it there. He could have left it there. He could have said, who is to condemn? And then he could have gave reason number one, Jesus Christ is the one who died, and he walks away. That's reason enough. Bottom line. But he doesn't leave us there. He keeps going. And he moves us on to reason number two. So if you're just going to say someone died for our sins, okay. Everybody dies, right? That's just part of life. He's going to ratchet it up just a little bit. We're going to add a little bit more to this reasoning behind why there is no one that can condemn us. He even says, more than just dying, he was raised. We're moving up the ladder in the level of extraordinary. He died. Okay, everybody died. That was an extraordinary thing. He died for us. But now we've amped it up one degree. He defeated death. That's something you don't see every day. 
That's something that's truly extraordinary. He took our sins, he was crucified, he died, he was placed in a tomb, and he rose again. What power. What an amazing feat or accomplishment that occurred for us. If he would have died and been placed in that tomb and was still there to this day, we are, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the most to be pitied. What good is that? He didn't do anything that everybody else doesn't do. But he didn't there. He didn't end it there. He rose from the grave. So if Paul had chosen to stop there, that's fine. Jesus Christ came to this earth as God in the flesh. He died. He was crucified. He buried. He rose from the grave. That's enough. Should be reason enough why no one can condemn us, right? But he doesn't leave us there. He keeps adding to this beautiful, logical argument that he gives us. Reason number three. Not only did Jesus die for our sins, not only was he resurrected, but where is he now? He's at the right hand of God. He just didn't raise from the grave and now he's floating around here all over the place. He's at a beautiful position of authority. He's at God's right hand. Now, does this mean he's sitting at God's right hand? I don't know. It's, it's a metaphor. He may be at God's right hand, but I know he's omnipresent as well. So I'm not going to argue one way or the other. I will tell you that this is a metaphor. God's right hand illustrates a place of honor. A place of power. And that's where the son is. Which side of the king did the queen always set on? The right side. When we have the Olympics and you have the gold medalist on top, where is the silver medalist? The right side. They are the next one. The bronze is on the left side. You've heard the term right-hand man, right? Kelly, I'm really sorry. I know this, this world is a right-hand world, and for those of you that are left-handed, you just kind of feel left out. But you've heard the term right-hand man. That right hand is a place of authority. It's a place of being where you are with the principal. And you share the same wills and desires and thoughts and wants. And your right-hand man is one with you. The right-hand man does what you're wanting them to do before you even ask them. It just happens that way. But that's where this comes from. They carry your heavy load. They carry your burden. They take care of everything you want accomplished. Because you are one with them they are the person that you can rely on and trust more than any other person you trust their opinion because you are on the same page and you share the same goals opinions and ideas <clears throat> if they ask you for something you know they're not trying to take advantage of you and you give it 
Now, as I have warned you, probably every week for the past few months, I give analogies or I give metaphors. They all break down when we try to impose them on God. This one does as well. Because if we have someone sitting at the right hand, we've got a silver medalist, right? And so we have this thought in our idea that maybe Jesus isn't quite as important as God. Now, there are those that believe that. I don't. I'm not one of those. I believe that the Trinity, they share power equally. I mean, this is where that metaphor breaks down. That God is not subser- Jesus is not subservient to God. So I believe that's a frailty in this metaphor. Nonetheless, they share the same ideas and goals and desires. And what Jesus asks for, he gets. I believe that this metaphor just helps us better understand the power that Jesus has with respect to his Father and how that's delineated. Their wills are perfectly aligned with anything that Jesus wants, the Father wants, and the Spirit wants. So with all that, the fact that Jesus died for us, that he was raised from the dead, and that he's at a place of honor and authority before the Father, that should be enough to convince us that there is no one there that can condemn us. But he doesn't leave us there. He continues with this flow of logic and gives us reason number four. He doesn't just stop with Jesus dying and being raised from the dead and being at the place of authority. He finishes us or finishes it with perhaps the most important, I tend to believe that these are ranked. And I think each one of them gets more significant as we go through the reason. He died for us, beautiful and extraordinary, but as I said, everybody died. He was raised from the grave, that's miraculous in every way. Now he's at a position of authority with the Father. And then finally, who is interceding for us. I think that's the level or levels of importance or authority that that Paul's building up to as he makes these arguments. So, we have before us that it no one can condemn us because of all of these things and finally that Jesus is actually the one interceding for us that he is praying for us to the father i must confess in times past i don't make a lot of this but i think we should because it's an extraordinary thought it's an extraordinary event and i think that's why paul saves it to the last is we should make a big deal over this Ever bit as much as all the others. Perhaps even more. Because this is the ultimate reason why there is no one that can condemn us. There's nothing that Jesus prays for that he doesn't receive. Nothing. Everything that he prays for... He receives. His prayers are always answered by the Father because His will and the Father's will are one. 
We pray oftentimes and never receive what we ask for, right? We don't have that beauty of being perfectly aligned with the Father's will. Jesus does. And who is he praying for? Us. It's not everyone. It's us. And who's us? We go all the way back up to verse 28. Those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. The elect of God. Those are who he is praying for. From that place of authority. Not for the unbelievers, just the believers. I firmly believe that this is the most important reason why no one, no one can condemn us. That we are without condemnation. Yet it is the one reason that I feel is most overlooked. We don't stop and think about this as readily and as often as we should. That Jesus is right now praying for every believer in this room. When we sin and we are convicted of our sin and we have questions about our eternity and what that's going to look like, what's the first thing that happens in our minds? We need to stop sinning. Well, I challenge you this morning that the first thing you need to remember in your mind is Jesus is praying for us. That there's not going to be any condemnation. And it's because of that prayer that we will have the ability to stop sinning. That's why we don't fall headlong into that sin and destroy our eternity. It's because the prayers of the Son keep us from that. Keep us from destroying our eternity. The fact that Jesus is praying and interceding for us all times should be one of the most comforting thoughts that we have in our minds. I love Luke 22. You guys have heard me quote and cite Luke 22 many times. It's when Peter decides that he's not going to deny Christ. Jesus says, you're going to deny me, Peter. Not me, Lord, not me. I'm with you. And Jesus brings him back to reality. He says, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. Anybody know what sifting wheat is, was? No? No? No old farmers in here? They take the wheat and they throw it on the floor. It's a thrashing floor and basically you'd walk on it. And as you walked on the wheat, the grains would pop out of the of the the straw and the head and and everything that was left was chaff and it would blow away the chaff would blow away so it was a process of actually getting the wheat from the plant and so jesus is telling peter satan believes that you're the plant that you're the chaff and you're going to be blown away that you're not really the seed and he's going to stomp you to see if that's the reality but what was the next line that jesus tells peter I've prayed for you. And what did he pray for, Peter? That your faith will not fail. This is a beautiful earthly example of exactly what our high priest is doing for us all the time. Satan is trying to stomp us out. 
But he's like, no, it's not going to happen, Peter. Even though you got a big mouth and you're going to deny me, you're not going to lose your eternity because I'm praying for you and it's not going to fail. And by the way, whenever you return, strengthen your brothers. If Jesus had not have prayed for Peter, he's done. He's Judas. He walks away. That's the difference. That's why no one can condemn us. If Jesus does not pray for us, we're done. We walk away. We burn our Bibles when we leave the church. The most important part of the security of our salvation is knowing that our Lord and Savior is praying for us, that our faith will not fail. That is the beauty of having Him as our high priest. We don't talk about that a lot. You want to learn a lot about that? Go to Hebrews. But He is our high priest. And I will finish up with this quote from Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, He is able to save for how long? Till we sin again? No. Forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives, always, always lives to make intercession for them, to pray for them. So we're saved forever because He's always praying for us. Only reason. Only reason. That's why it's so important. And that's why He gets glorified for it and we don't. You say, oh, well, I avoided sin the other day. No, you didn't. The only way that you were able to avoid that sin was because Jesus was praying that you might avoid that sin. And all the glory reverts back to Him. What confidence there can be in knowing, I'm not going to be able to do anything to destroy my salvation because Jesus Christ is praying for me. Not because I have some extraordinary will. Not because there's something innate in me. Because there's something extraordinary in my Savior. That's why it's going to be that way. That's how it happens. That's what makes sure we get to the end in one piece. And we get to eternity in one piece. Because He is the great High Priest. So I encourage us all this morning... When we feel beat down, discouraged, we find ourselves dealing with sin and doubt or whatever it is, know that you're not keeping yourself. Know that you're being kept by your Savior. Because me trying to keep myself would be like me trying to pour water into my hand. It's always going to flow through. And I'm never going to be able to hang on. But I praise God to give us a Savior that came to this earth, that died for us, that rose again, that sits at the right hand of Almighty God, and that prays for us all the time. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for these beautiful passages that we look at. Father, we just pray that you would help remind us of them so often. Sometimes it's easy for us to get, forget exactly what Jesus is doing now. 
We tend to focus on what he has done, and that's beautiful, and that's extraordinary, and it's amazing. But it is of no greater significance than what he does for us right now. And that he is always making intercession for us, and that he is always praying for us. And that it is that prayer that sustains us and will enable us to make it to eternity. Father, we pray that you were glorified this morning. That you, the Father, that you, the Son, that you, the Holy Spirit, were brought special glory. And we thank you for watching over us. And Father, we just pray that everyone in here is counted among those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. For it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. All rise.